Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Room in the Tower" by E. F. Benson. This was first published in the Pall Mall Magazine, January 1912. A uh, illustrated version is on the website, and there's a couple of nice illustrations therein. Um, I'd heard about this story quite a quite a while ago. I'm, I can't say exactly when, um, and it was. It's not the only story with this title. There's a, a Weird Tales story in the very first issue of Weird Tales called The Room in the Tower. Uh, much shorter version of a much shorter short story. Uh, but it's also the title of a collection of E.F. Benson stories. So I'm not sure if this is famous because of that book of collecting E.F. Benson or it's famous uh, on its own. But uh, I read it and I sent it to you. And uh, it had all the things that attracted me to E.F. Benson in the first place. Um, I think we've talked about him and his... uh, He has two brothers, uh, A.C. and R. something. (laughs) And also a sister who are all writers. Uh, And they all... uh, I'm not sure about the sister, but they all um, did a little bit of this um, sort of ghost story stories. And um, I will note uh, that this being the January 1912 issue of Weird Tale, uh, sorry, of the Pall Mall magazine, um, it fits into the tradition, especially in the UK, of having Christmas ghost stories. So this would have come out in January. And uh, the most famous version of one of those... come out in December. Uh, you're right. That's what I meant. Um, the most famous um, example of a Christmas ghost story is uh, by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Um, we don't have that tradition as strongly. Uh, we sort of think of ghost stories as more associated with Halloween. But in the UK, um, even today, you know, Christmas for them is kind of like Halloween in that the TV shows start showing uh, Christmas specials, which are ghost stories. And this is kind of a ghost story. Also turns out it's kind of a vampire story, which is cool. But uh, the most interesting thing to me about it in in the setup is that it's also a dream story, a recurring dream story. And I am uh, a prodigious dreamer. <laughs> so that's my setup for The Room in the Tower. How did you find it? <laughs> well, the obvious answer is you sent me a copy, mm-hmm. but um, I liked it a lot. Um, it it begins well. The copy that, that we have online mm-hmm. shows a, the very first page has uh, an image of someone groping forward out of the dark. It is in many ways visually reminiscent of that famous still that exists from the the uh, the the uh, first kinetoscope uh, hmm. uh, filming of Frankenstein that hmm. Thomas Edison did. Hmm. That fellow swaddled in uh, shroud, shredded shroud, leaning forward with one hand, clawing forward toward their viewer, and that's what this looks like. There's one kind of 
reference after another here as I read it uh, over 100 years after it was published. Um, 1912 is not that far uh, after Edison, so that's probably not a reference at all. Uh, but this idea of groping out of the darkness, ah, that's something that works. And there's a lot in this story that mm -hmm. works like that. The tower, the room in the tower is part of uh, a literary tradition. The oval portrait mm. is set in the room in the tower. Uh, Sleeping Beauty meets her curse by falling back into a bed that's prepared for her after she pricks her finger on a spindle in a room in the tower. Uh, so the, the, the very title concept is reminiscent of, uh, for me, the kind of phenomenological analysis that Gaston Bachelard gives us in The Poetics of Space. What is the tower as opposed to the basement? Mm -hmm. What is the outside as opposed to the inside? What is the dark as opposed to the light? What is a bed as opposed to a chair? All of these things have psychological resonances that are shot through at least Western culture. And this is firmly within Western culture. So. Right away, I thought I, ah, I have a sense of what's going on here. It begins with an italicized passage. It is probable that everybody who is at, a, at all a constant dreamer has had at least one experience of an event or a sequence of circumstances which have come to his mind in sleep, being subsequently realized in the material world. But in my opinion, so far from this being a strange thing, and then it goes on about how dreams respond to the world we're in and so on. And it looks at first as if this is one of those editorial comments. One You're finds. right. Um, but then, of course, it turns out not to be an editorial comment. It turns out to be the, the way in which the narrator is getting us to pay attention to his story. And then he begins again, and this time in Roman type. A certain friend of mine living abroad is amiable enough to write to me. And he talks about how he he comes to expect a letter from this fellow every 14 days or so. Mm -hmm. And he has a dream in which he gets a letter from this fellow. And then the very next day he gets a letter from this fellow. Now, this is a very interesting Pre, I would call it the, the frame for the story, except we've already had the italicized portion. So it's, it's an inner frame, but it's still a frame mm -hmm. to the story as a whole. It's a very interesting frame for me in a number, for a number of reasons, one of which is it purports to, to show us that it is reasonable to have recurring dreams, that these represent no deep psychological sense whatsoever. On the other hand... He tells us that in this dream he has of the letters arriving from the friend who was abroad in Italy, in fact, he opens uh, the letter that gets delivered to his door and in it is an ace of spades. And he's told that of, uh, I think it was it spades or diamonds. Um, anyway, there's, a, there's an uh, ace. The first time it's uh, I found inside the ace of diamonds and scribbled the ace of diamonds. Yeah. Thank okay. you. And read it, Jesse. Yeah, okay. Uh, I found inside the Ace of Diamonds and scribbled across it in his well-known handwriting, quote, I am sending you this for safe custody, as you know it is running an unreasonable risk to keep aces in Italy. 
And that's all that we're told about it. This inner frame never returns to that story. That's right. So it's a front it's a front framing, as it is, by the way, in uh, The Turn of the Screw, which also is the recounting of a Christmas ghost story. Um, almost as famous, but not as famous as A Christmas Carol. Um, so we're never told, we'd never come back to this, but really? It's bad to keep aces in Italy? Mm-hmm. This is well known? Mm-hmm. How can he tell us that this is a perfectly reasonable dream that anybody would have? And then not talk further about it. There's something, I don't know, unreliable about this narrator? That Why is he telling us at all? And then he tells us the inner story. And mm-hmm. the story has to do with a recurring dream that began when he was about 15 and proceeded for 16, sorry, began at 16 and proceeded for 15 years. So it's coming up at a time, uh, we can look at this retrospectively, of burgeoning sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a schoolmate named Jack Stone, mm-hmm. apparently in real life. Um, and it, after leaving school, he never sees this guy again, but he persists in having this dream in which Jack Stone invites him to his country home. There is a scene at the country home of a tea party, at first set on the lawn outside the house. Through the window, you can look inside and see a dining room set with silver and plate. Or later, sometimes the tea uh, happens inside the house, and you can see out. In either case, to the side one sees a lawn and later it turns out that this lawn has gravestones in it but the tea party regardless of where set is in complete silence until the mother says um jack will show you your room i have given you the room in the tower okay i have given you the room in the tower what happens with this dream is it doesn't exactly recur. It seems to age along with the dreamer and the people in the dream who are other, all silent except for the, the mother having this one, uh, this one line or the, at the tea party at least. Uh, Jack leads uh, the dreamer up to the room and the dreamer becomes terrified at what he might find inside the room. And uh, the, the aging has to do is signaled by the the mother becoming more gray haired. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the older sisters stops appearing and he comes to understand somehow the dreamer does that she's married and is now off living with a husband later. In fact, uh, she comes back. um, But with the husband, it's obvious. Um, And at one of the the dreamings, the mother is gone and everyone is in black. And sure enough, looking over at the lawn, he sees a, uh, a headstone, and the headstone is in memory of the evil mother. Who would have written evil mother on yeah. a, head, a headstone, right? In evil memory of Julia Stone, it says. Now, in real life, at least so the narrator says, in real life, he is invited down to a country house rented by a friend of his. Uh, the friend is named John Clinton. But, of course, the uh, nickname for John, a nickname for John is Jack. And he does get called that later um, in the in the real experience. And in this real experience, he goes and uh, 
he's got a room in the tower. It, it matches exactly the recurring dream he's had for a decade and a half. And in that room, there is a picture of what seems to be the dead mother. They take the room, the picture out of the room, Jack, his host, and a servant, and all of them wind up with blood on their hands. The portrait is incredibly heavy. They wind up with blood on their hands. When they wipe their hands clean, it turns out there's no cut. Where did the blood come from? When our fellow finally goes up to go to sleep, he's terrified, wakes up, the portrait has somehow been moved back over his bed, and with a flash of lightning, hello Frankenstein, mm -hmm. we see a woman enshrouded, old, leaning over the bed and looking at him. Um, he runs fearfully. He encounters Jack, who's come up to, to try to see what's wrong because our dreamer and narrator has yelled out, in horror the sequel can be made short the story ends indeed some of my readers may perhaps already have guessed what it was if they remember that inexplicable affair of the churchyard at west Fawley some eight years ago where an attempt was made three times to bury the body of a certain woman who had committed suicide on each occasion, the coffin was found in the course of a few days, again protruding from the ground. After the third attempt, in order that that thing should not be talked about, the body was buried elsewhere in unconsecrated ground, where it was buried. The key point here being that uh, consecrated ground rejects the body of a suicide. After the third attempt, in order that the thing should not be talked about, the body was buried elsewhere in unconsecrated ground. Where it was buried was just outside the iron gate of the garden belonging to the house where the woman had lived. She had committed suicide in a room at the top of the tower in that house. Her name was Julia Stone. Subsequently, the body was again secretly dug up and the coffin was found to be full of blood. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. the end of the story. And, and, and you asked at first, you asked me at first, Jesse, how did I find it? Now I find myself among my many reactions, two that I think are prominent. One, really nothing much is going on here. It's yep. just basically a boo, you know, kind of ghost mm -hmm. story. And yet it's told so smoothly and with such vivid uh, visualization and a sense of growing emotion and uh, complex calm at the same time that one acknowledges these things about uh, the speaker's dreams that it keeps me utterly engrossed. Mm. And the second thing is, and this alludes, this has to do with what you said, is it a ghost story? Is it a Christmas story? Mm -hmm. Is it part of the fairy tale tradition that I was alluding to? Is it a vampire story? Mm -hmm. And there's one other kind of story. This reference to what happened at West Folly mm -hmm. brings to mind a superb book that I read many years ago called Vampires, Burial, and Death by Paul Barber. It's a 1988 book that was reissued with a new uh, introduction in 2010. It's, it's, it's got legs. And 
What Barber argues is that the reality of shallow burying, of frost heaves, as certain diseases that keep the blood from congealing, um, have led to all kinds of vampire legends, and that the ways in which we bury people have created these stories just as much as the stories reflect anything else, psychological or what have mm -hmm. you. And I can't help but wonder if there really was an incident in West Folly in 1904 that Benson is picking up on and making a story out of it. So my two reactions are wonderfully written story. Mm -hmm. And oh, what kind of story is it? Jesse, did I answer your question? Yep. Yeah, you did. Absolutely. So, uh, one of the things that's kind of weird to me is why I like this story, because I, I shouldn't like it, given that it turns out in the end that, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a hodgepodge. It's, it's a mix of something I do like, which is a ghost story, and, uh, a weird story, weird fiction, and also has, um, this dream sequence at the beginning, or this dream setup, I guess. And I think that that's the most important part of it to me. The fact that it turned out to be a vampire story in the end, uh, or kind of, um, I almost don't like that part at all. And yet it, it all, it does sort of hold together as a kind of a, a boo at the end. And I want to, I want to point out that there's a, um, a 10 years later, there is a story by Walter Delamere that's kind of similar to this, and it is completely done as a weird tale. And it's much more subtle about it being a vampire. It, it, uh, in this one, we have the explanation, a very pat explanation at the end in the sequel, uh, which is what just what happened after the main events of the story. Um, and we're, we're told that, oh, we should remember this incident in the newspaper about a, a coffin coming out of the ground and being rejected by the earth, and then being subsequently dug up and moved. And then when they, it was secretly dug up, subsequently the body was again secretly dug up, and the coffin was found to be full of blood. Like, who did that digging up? And if it's a secret, isn't that the narrator? I mean, oh, this is kind of getting silly, right? It, it, that's the, um, the ghost story around the campfire ending. Um, with uh, the story I'm thinking of by Walter de la Mer called Seton's Aunt. It has the, a very similar setup. There is a, a couple of boyhood friends, uh, although one of them's not really friends with the other one. It's just that Seton, um, who is the, the narrator who's the narrator's acquaintance, invites him, the narrator to come visit um, him and his aunt. Uh, at their home. And because nobody likes Seton at school, the narrator feels sorry for him, and Seton is always trying to make friends. He's an odd boy, we're told. Seton uh, takes him to visit the ant, and the ant is incredibly intelligent and very um, arch, um, and seems to have a very strange relationship with Seton. Subsequently, time goes by, like 16 years perhaps, and he sees Seton again, who says, oh, I'm getting married. Will you come to the wedding and be my best man? They have not been in contact since then. And the narrator is fascinated and also 
repulsed by Seaton and his aunt, and he subsequently goes and visits the house again. So, uh, in that case, the vampirism seems to be like a kind of psychic vampirism. That is, she sucks the life out of Seaton. Um, she is such a powerful force within the household that his existence is snuffed out by her, her, her will. And, uh, the marriage doesn't occur because he dies. Um, that story has the same kind of, uh, anticipation and then the payoff. But in the end, we don't have this pat sort of ghostly explanation. And to me, that's the difference between weird fiction and sort of everything else that's related, like horror and ghost and that sort of thing. And I really, I prefer that. On the other hand, this has something that I think the opening explanation frame for it with the dreams and the Ace of Diamonds and the fact that, it, you know, it's never explained in the end what, how this connects. Um, I think that that's masterful too. So I quite like this story, even though technically it is not something I should like at all. And, uh, and, I have a strange relationship to dreams. I, I, I cultivate their, uh, writing down. I, I explicitly try to write down my dreams whenever I can. And I find sometimes them to be shallow. Uh, but most of the time there's like a, a subtle connection going on within them. The, this, uh, this opening where we're told, uh, I'm sending you this for safe custody. As you know, it is, uh, running a r unreasonable risk to keep aces in Italy, that is dream logic perfectly encapsulated because um, it makes sense within the dream, but it doesn't make sense <laughs> in the world. It seems like a joke. But uh, what color are aces? Well, they're black, right? And color plays a huge role throughout this story. I noted um, the blood on the hands, there's also a cat and a dog playing a role. Um, there's uh, all, there's gr gray and the color of the hair changing. Um, there's a red brick wall. Um, there's the green lawn. And in particular, there's a very minor mention of something in this story that I've been searching for for years and just this morning realized what it was. So... Years ago, I noticed a pattern, and I think it may have been one you put me onto, uh, with a story called The Green Door, or uh, Beyond the Green Door. I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's by H.G. Wells. Uh, oh, it's called The Door in the Wall. That's what it is. And it's a, it's a kind of a fantastic story. It's kind of hard to understand like what genre it is. But basically, it's about a young man who repeatedly experiences a green door throughout his life. The first one appearing in childhood, he passes through it and meets a woman who shows him the future. She is uh, accompanied by leopards. It's an astounding story. And subsequently, when he sees the green door, he is somehow too busy to visit it again, though compelled to do so. At one point, he's a uh, up-and-coming lawyer, another point he's a minister in the government, and the third point, he is the prime minister. Um, 
one narrator, whoever it is in that story, subsequently tells us that his body was found um, in a uh, build a construction site, having had a door in the wall that he had passed through and was somehow not locked. Um, so when we get the quote in here about the green door, I was like, this is interesting. What does it mean? I'll just read that mm -hmm. section. As this dream continued to recur, I got to know the greater part of the house. There was a smoking room beyond the drawing room at the end of the passage with a green baize door. It was always very dark there, and as often as I went there, I passed somebody whom I could not see in the doorway coming out. Curious developments took, too took place in the characters and the pe uh, that people to dream as may, might happen to living persons. And then we get the part about her, uh, Mrs. Stone's hair color changing. Um, so uh, when I subsequently typed in bays to remember what bays was, it's kind of <laughs> cloth material um, similar to felt. Um, and uh, if you've seen a pool table, you've seen green felt of that. Um, it turns out that there's a long tradition in Victorian era and prior and into the 20th century of having green felt or baize doors separating servants' quarters from the rest of the household. And there is a servant in this story. There's the, the footman who comes to help them move this very heavy painting. He, too, is consulted later on about whether he had had a cut on his hand uh, as they the two uh, men had. Um, but the servants don't seem to play a major role in this story. And yet, um, in all the stories where I've noticed green doors before, green doors are always magic doors. They either allow you uh, in... Uh, a, there's a story by William, William, William Perkins Freeman? No. Um, there's a woman named Perkins Freeman who has a story called The Green Door. And uh, there's a number, there's a movie called Beyond the Green Door. There's a, a number of stories with green doors. And so I, I sort of see this as like a, um, there's a subtext going on. The, the family of Clinton matches the family of, of uh, Stone, right? They're familiar to him, unlike the family in the dream, who are relatively unfamiliar to him. He knows them only in the dream. So there's this back and forth of him, our narrator, not knowing uh, this to be a recurring of the dream, and also realizing it's a recurring of the dream, and being frightened of what's going to happen. It's a strange tension, and ultimately, I think, other than that ending, it, it works greatly as weird fiction. Actually, Jesse, I think that uh, that that ending helps it work as weird fiction. So. You may disagree with me. Uh, and one of the questions that I think um, people raise for themselves when they awaken from a particularly totalizing dream is what's the, the relationship between dream and reality mm -hmm. as at the end of Through the Looking Glass, you know, and who, who dreamed it is the name of that penultimate chapter. 
right? Was it um, was it Alice dreaming the Wonderland world, or were Tweedledee and Tweedledum having a dream, or was was some character within that having a dream? And it's Alice's world. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you know what's the dream and what's the reality? So that's a continuing question. And having that initial italicized section which says, well, you know, uh, let me tell you about this, because people are wrong in thinking that it's premonitory. Uh, and, and I'll explain why. And then begins the, the inner frame, not the inner story, the inner frame in which he explains mm, that it's not really premonitory. It makes perfect sense that I'm expecting a letter from my friend in Italy. Uh, by the way, uh, just a small footnote, um, aces of diamonds, I misremembered it as ace of spades, you use a spade to make a grave and death is black, but, but blood is red and aces of diamonds are red. Right. Um, but, um, you know, that seems like a, a strange detail, but we're given a lot of detail. We're told how old he is when the stories begin. Mm-hmm. We're told how, I mean, the dream begins. We're told how old he is when he comes down to that country house in reality and has this experience we're told that from the first time, that is seven years earlier, right? So he's 15 or 16, I forget which now. When he starts, he has, the, I guess he's 16 when it starts. He has the dream for 15 years. He's telling us this story, but eight years earlier, meaning in the middle of the time that he's having this recurring dream, the incident occurs in West Foley, and the name on, of the, the person there who can't stay buried is Julia Stone. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, having given us this real world detail so clearly, the last isn't an explanation at all. Because you still have to ask, well, then how did he know the name seven years earlier? Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe it was premonitory. He really did have this Jack Stone as a school fellow, but he never saw him again. Right. Was he cursed by Jack Stone? This this is only a weird story if you're willing to let go of the agreed public reality that we have in in England at the time. Edwardian, I guess, um, mm-hmm. Victoria has been dead for a decade. Um, The story doesn't come out and say, look, I'm weird. The story comes out and says, nothing to watch here. Move along. Yeah. But I've given you so much detail that if you stop and look at it, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, And honestly, I I don't like ghost stories that much because they're not weird. They don't have that, uh, that borderline between, like, what really happened it's they tend to be more simple than that and uh you know uh, we talked about it right at the beginning uh charles dickens a christmas carol is a ghost story but it doesn't feel like one <laughs> because it's all for a purpose it's all for a purpose those ghosts there are to reform a man those ghosts there are to put the spirit of christmas into us it's perfectly effective for that it isn't a boo s- 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 story. It's a ba story, ba humbug <laughs> story. This is but, a boo, but it also has this oddness, this 
uncanniness. And maybe that's the best word for this story. It is of the uncanny. And that complexity, as Freud says, the uncanny is the familiar scene in an unfamiliar way, mm. um, is what makes it such that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.